The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Matthew chapter 21. If you have the the skinny Pewback Bible, it's page 775, uh, the old school one. I do not know. It's a different page number. But Matthew, uh, first book of the New Testament, chapter 21. Starting verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, or put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Looking forward to getting into this passage with you all. Uh, It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. There's a lot going on. And so uh, we got a lot to do. So we're going to go ahead and pray right away, and then we'll dive in and, uh, and see what God has for us in Matthew 21. Let's pray together. I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thanks for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for what you've done uh, to make a way for us to be recipients of your mercy and grace. Thank you for your sacrificial death on the cross for us. 
that you would lay down your life for us while we are running away from you is a stunning reality. And I pray you'd help us to see this morning both the reality and the gravity of our own sin, something that's hard for us to face, but also in view of that to see the magnitude of your love, the depth of your love, the power of your faithfulness, the the beauty of your patience with us, your grace towards us. I pray we leave this place more in awe of who you are, more in awe of your love and your justice and the depth and the beauty of your complexity. God, I pray that you'd help us to see you as you truly are this morning in the face of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for a while, and as we've been working through, there's a little theme that kind of strings throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It's more prevalent in the, in the Gospel of Mark, but it's prevalent in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's called the Messianic Secret. Messianic Secret. It's not like a little secret that Jesus like, tells a few people and doesn't want people to tell. It's a, it's a secret about who he is. There are a number of places throughout the Gospels where Jesus, after he does a big miracle of some kind, will actually tell the person for whom he has done that miracle, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And so it raises this question, why is Jesus kind of keeping his identity under wraps? You see it most clearly in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew 16 is, is the place where Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus in front of his disciples says, yes, yes, this is true. Well done, Simon. You got it right. Like, good job. And Simon felt good about himself for like a second because that's like a few minutes later is when Jesus called him Satan and told him to get behind me. Uh, but in that moment, he's like, great job, Simon. You got it. Uh, you said it right. But he says, but don't tell anybody else. Don't tell anybody else. And he tells them that he's going to begin heading towards Jerusalem. So what's going on with the Messianic secret? Well, all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the, the closer followers are beginning to realize that Jesus is this king they've been waiting for. He's one who has come to bring restoration to the kingdom of God. He's come, one that has come to restore them and, and redeem them from oppression and from pain and from the challenges that they face in their life. And they're kind of beginning to understand his identity as king, but they don't yet fully understand what kind of king he is. And as he continues this movement, that kind of opposition against him is escalating in different people and especially among the religious elite. And so it seems as Jesus is walking through this journey that he doesn't want the sort of antipathy and the conflict to rise too high too early. He has a specific time and a specific place where he wants to bring this conflict to its head, and it's not yet and it's not now, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. I say all of that because for the past few weeks we've been looking at Jesus on this journey towards Jerusalem, and today we make our way into Jerusalem. We make our way into Jerusalem, and today is when that conflict finally comes to its head. Today we're looking at what has historically been called Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar. Uh, in the Hebrew calendar, it was the beginning of what was called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. So a time when Jewish people around Israel and in the surrounding regions would make their way towards Jerusalem to celebrate a week-long festival that would lead up to Passover. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of walk through the passage and just get our minds and hearts into the passage and pull out a handful of observations about who Jesus is because there, I think there are, there are parts of his identity, parts of his character that we need to see that are actually pretty challenging for us in our cultural moment with our cultural sensibilities, things that are challenging for us to pay attention to. And when we struggle to see the full picture of who Jesus is, it's to our own detriment. And so look with me into the passage. We're going to move pretty quickly through this, what we call the triumphal entry, because we've covered it so many times on Palm Sundays, and we'll kind of slow down a little bit when Jesus gets into the temple. So look with me. This is Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. 
Now when they, that's Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Are we gonna stop here, kind of get you into the scene? It's been weeks where the, Jesus and his disciples have been heading towards Jerusalem. As they've been going, we've been talking about it. It's becoming clearer and clearer to the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. And what that means to them as he approaches Jerusalem, especially as they feel the significance of the timing, how many people are going to be in Jerusalem at this time, they're beginning to get really excited about him finally establishing his kingdom, kind of him finally pulling back the curtain and saying, yes, I'm the king, follow me, let's drive out the Romans, let's establish the kingdom, let's bring Israel back to its former glory. So they're increasingly excited. And so as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, you kind of have this sense, like is he gonna continue to kind of play it low key savior or is he gonna kind of like own this and like be the savior that they want him to be? And as soon as he says to them, here's the plan, let's stop here sends a couple out into the village nearby to get this donkey, they immediately understand what this, what this means. Matthew kind of indicates it for us. This is a, a prophecy from Zechariah chapter nine, where it was prophesied that this coming king would come not on a war horse, but humble and mounted on a donkey, accessible, humble. This is what David had done, that's what Solomon had done on their journeys into Jerusalem. And so he was showing himself, when Jesus is actually telling his disciples to go do this, you kind of imagine this buzz around the disciples, like, oh man, he's gonna like visibly own that he's the king. This would be the first time he would have done that in a public setting. So you feel their excitement. The scene itself is humorous, it's always been funny to me, just imagining the, the two disciples going into a village, finding the donkey and the full of the donkey there and taking them and just kind of walking off with them and the owner says, hey, those, those, are, those are my donkeys, you know? Uh, what you doing there, pal? And, uh, and them saying, the Lord needs them, you know? And they say, okay, sounds good, that's great, take them. And so they do, that's what happens. And I don't know, I don't know like if this is just like his sovereignty, his power, his omniscience, or like a, or like a secret code he had set up beforehand with a, fa- like with a family, like, hey, I'm gonna send people. If, if, if people come and steal your donkey, ask them what they're doing, and if they don't say the Lord needs them, then they're, they're really stealing your donkeys, you know? Uh, <laughs> but if they say the Lord needs them, they're from me, and you know, send them away. So I don't know. I don't know what it is, but that's what's going on. So they go, they take them, they get the donkeys, they bring them back to Jesus. And Matthew says that this is fulfilling this prophecy. But in the, in the moment, they, they kind of put the, put the cloaks on Jesus and Jesus sits on the, on the full of the donkey and is going in and the mother donkey's there with him going. And as they go in, everybody understands what's happening. Everybody. I want you to kind of understand the situation that's happening in, in Jerusalem. Uh, most archaeologists now are saying that Jerusalem at this time was a city of around 50,000 people. And you have at least 150,000 pilgrims that were going to make their way into Jerusalem for this festival. At least. That's conservative estimate. So it's going to at least quadruple in size. You're going to go from 50,000 to 200,000 people in this city. And so on this same day, on this Sunday, coming into Jerusalem are hundreds of thousands of pilgrims of Jewish people coming into the city to celebrate. Among those people, there are 
many, many who have heard rumors of Jesus, rumors of who he is, that there's this itinerant prophet-like preacher that's moving around in the Galilee area, that's been healing people. Did you hear? My cousin was out there. My cousin couldn't walk, was born lame, but he went to Jesus and was healed. Yeah, I heard that. And did you hear about that person who was blind? And Yeah, I heard that. And did you hear? I was there when he was teaching on that, on that sermon up on the hill of Galilee. Did you hear the wisdom that he had? Yeah, I heard that. Man, did you see that pig? Did you hear about that pig? That person that was like, demon-possessed, and he cast out the demons, and the demons went into the pigs, and the pigs went down into the sea, and all these kind of like rumors and stories that are buzzing around, like maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the king. Maybe he's the one we've been waiting for. There are stories. There are rumors. There are kind of a growing sense of desire that he would truly be the king, but he hasn't owned it. He hasn't said, yes, that's who I am. He continues to kind of every time you feel a sort of momentum building, he says something hard or something cryptic or withdraws from the crowd. And so the momentum has never fully kind of built. And in this moment, as Jesus goes into Jerusalem on this donkey, he's owning it for the first time publicly, and the momentum erupts into this kind of impromptu parade. And it's a powerful scene. Look at what it says in Matthew. It says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed him. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, most of the crowd, or it's like many, many people, this large crowd, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. When it says the whole city was stirred up, the the Greek word there is where we get get the word seismic. And the idea is shaken. I mean, the whole city was just shaken. This was a massive, massive event. And it happened, again, in an impromptu way. Jesus had planned it. He knew what he was doing. But he also knew that the seeds had been planted and that the momentum would grow. And that when that momentum would grow, it would bring his mission to its head. And that's what's happening right now. This is the first day of what we call Passion Week. Jesus will live for five more days and then he will be crucified. Five more days. And so for the next several chapters of Matthew... The next several chapters of Matthew will be covering one week of Jesus' life, and it'll take us about one year to get through that week. One year. We'll take our time, nice and slow. There's some gnarly chapters in the middle of this week. He says some some hard things, things that we really need to hear that are good for us. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and the crowds recognize what he's doing. They recognize what he's saying. They've heard the stories. They've heard the rumors. Now he's on a donkey. I remember that, that prophecy from Zechariah 9. He's the Messiah. The, the news spreads, and people are like taking out their cloaks and laying them down, like rolling out the red carpet. They're cutting off these kind of palm branches or like these signs of like Jewish nationalism, like waving a, like waving a flag at a parade, welcoming the king into the city, imagining that he's going to take his throne, establish his kingdom finally and fully, and Jesus does not silence them. In fact, when the Pharisees and the scribes in other places say, why aren't you silencing them? He says, if they didn't cry out, then the rocks would cry out. 
He's owning the fact that he's the king, but here are the two questions that rise immediately. Not just the king, as they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, it's from Psalm 118. It's this phrase, save us, save us, Lord, save us. Like the king is here, finally deliver us, save us, bring salvation, establish the kingdom. Here are the questions we need to ask. What kind of king is Jesus and how will he save us? What kind of king is is Jesus and how is he going to save us? So two questions that I think this passage brings up. They thought he was the king, he is the king. But what kind of king is he? They thought he had come to save them, he did come to save them. But how is he going to save them? One of my uh, favorite books uh, that I've read, and I read it a long time ago, and maybe, maybe high school, at least in college, I think it was in high school, was a book called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It's a great book. The whole, the whole book's great. The first chapter, though, will kind of like mess you up in all the right, all the right ways. And uh, this is, there's a quote from the first chapter of A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact, and portentous means like an an indicator of what's to come, that the fact that's most indicating of what's to come about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do. Maybe I just like insulted an English major in the room. Most of us don't know what portentous means. We think pretentious. Um, So sorry if I insulted your intelligence. For those that don't know, Uh, like me, Uh, what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That is convicting, challenging, and compelling to me. What do we think about God? How do you conceive of him? How do you conceive of his character, of his identity? How do you conceive of the way he operates and the way he engages? What you think about God, not, not your creedal affirmation, so talk about that in chapter one. He says, compared to our creedal affirmation, like we can, we can say all the creeds and you can check the, the, the kind of multiple choice stuff right on some tests, but in your deep heart, what do you conceive of him to be like? We walk into a space like this and there's a lot of different tensions in the room. Some of you come to a place where you conceive of him to be stern, domineering, and distant. Some of you come from a place where you conceive of him to be warm, tender, affectionate, and near. Most of us tend towards one of those sides. Most of us do. And because of that, when we kind of are talking about the gospel and we're communicating about Jesus in a place like this, the different attributes of who he is and what he's like will press on us all in different ways. And I think in this passage, the characteristics of Jesus are going to press against us in some really important ways for us as a people. 
as followers of Jesus, we, we come into this relationship with him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you must come into this relationship with him determined to let him define who he is. That we don't want to be people who stand above him and critique who he is, what his character's like, what he's allowed to say or not allowed to say, what he's allowed to do or not allowed to do, the emotions he's allowed to feel or not allowed to feel. You're like, I don't like that. Well, if we don't like that, what what I've learned and, and continue to learn in my life is when there's something about Jesus or about God that's disturbing to me, which there are, there, there certainly are. There are things that like are unsettling to me. I always feel from it an invitation to lean in. Lean in because there's something about God here that I need. There's something about his character here that I need to see. And I think there's something about the character of Jesus here as Jesus is showing us this perfect image of God as he is the image of God revealed perfectly. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell within him. As he's showing us what God is like, I think there's an aspect of the character of God that's really important for us to see. And so what I want to do is I'll spend a little more time on this next section, and then we'll kind of move quickly through the last couple sections. We're just going to look at a couple attributes of Jesus that we're seeing in this passage and and understand what what is this king? What is he like? And what does it mean? How is he going to save us? And so look with me, starting again, we're going to pick up in verse 12. In Matthew's account, uh, Matthew erases their sleep. Uh, We learn from other gospel accounts that this is the next day, but Matthew's just keeping them all connected, that Jesus has come into Jerusalem, that the momentum is rising, the tension is escalating, and Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Look with me, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. The word drove out is the same word that we use or that is used in the New Testament to talk about driving out demons, so exorcisms. Same word for driving out, this kind of powerful like expulsion. All who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you ever read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. All right, so what's happening in this scene? This scene is traditionally called the temple cleansing, and it's in all the gospel accounts. And in this account, it's a powerful, powerful moment. As Jesus goes into the temple, we learn from other gospel accounts that he constructed a whip I've never made a whip before. I've never done that, but I don't think it happens like really quickly. I imagine like, like, like he's like planning on this moment, right? Like he's, he's not just like walking in, like flips out in this moment of kind of reactive rage. Like he has been p- planning this moment. He understands the corruption that's happening inside the temple. In fact, we can read about it a little bit. You learn these kind of like foretastes of it in Matthew chapter 17 when these temple tax collectors made their way to Jesus to ask Peter 
if Jesus was gonna pay the temple tax. And we talked about this at this point, so I wanna remind you of what's happening. When Jesus goes into the temple, the temple has its own kind of like the Holy of Holies outside of the Holy of Holies. There's the altars where the sacrifice would be made. And then you have the kind of like main court where the people of Israel were allowed. Outside of that, you have something called the court of the Gentiles, this portico of Solomon. In the court of the Gentiles, the nations were allowed to be in that space. Non-Jewish people were allowed to be in that space to pray and to commune with God. So there were God-fearing people who are not, who are not Hebrews, who are not Jewish people, and they were allowed into this court of the Gentiles to pray, but it was rarely used. The sort of like separation between the Jewish people and the Gentiles was like this huge barrier, this huge wall of division. And so it was, wasn't used for that predominantly. And so the high priest of this era, this guy named Caiaphas, had set up within the court of the Gentiles all this place for people to do their kind of business before they would do sacrifices in the temple. So imagine 150,000 people making their way into the temple. When you make your way into the temple, you're going to be coming into this festival. This week, you're going to be doing a number of sacrifices. Most people would not bring a lamb from their own house or a pigeon from their own house or the sacrificial animals they needed. Most people would bring money and they'd come to the temple and they would pay to get the animals that they needed for their sacrifices. So imagine the situation, you've got your family, you're making your way up, maybe a two or three day journey from your house. You've made your way up to Jerusalem for the Festival of Unleavened Bread. You come in and you go into the temple. And when you go into the temple, the first place you're going in is this court of the Gentiles, Solomon's portico. And in the court of the Gentiles, you're just seeing like a marketplace. Imagine this busy, buzzing marketplace. And you go up and you're like, all right, what do we need this year? I've got all my kids and my family and here's what we need. We need this many lambs, this many kind of like different sacrificial animals. If you're poor and didn't have very much money, you didn't have to sacrifice a lamb, you could sacrifice a pigeon instead. And so you go in, you're figuring out what you need. So you go up to buy a pigeon or a lamb, and as you're asking them for it, they're like, yeah, here's how much it costs. And you're like, man, that's pretty steep. And you pull out of your pocket your little money bag, and you've got a bunch of denarii. This is like a, a denarius is a Roman coin. And this Roman coin had Caesar's head on it. And the, and the temple person would say, sorry, we don't take coins with Caesar's head on it. That's like a defiling of the temple. There's laws about it and stuff. And you're like, oh, man. What do I do? And you're like, we'll go over there to the money changers. All right, so you kind of walk across, make your way through all the goats and the pigeons and the lambs, and you're like, all right, money changers. You make your way to the money changer booth, and you've got your, you know, your coins, and you make a change, and there's an exchange fee, as, as there are in these things. And they're like, man, that's a steep exchange fee. Whoa. You know, so you give them your Roman coins, and you get a shekel, or you get whatever, a drachma, and you get these kind of coins that are acceptable, and you finally get those back, and you go back, and you, you buy these kind of different sacrificial animals, and maybe your pigeon, you know, has like some marring or some issues and not pure enough, whatever it might be. All of a sudden, you're just feeling like, man, this is craziness. There's so much stuff. It's craziness. It's busy. Poor people are being extorted. It's just this kind of like cacophony of noise. And Jesus walks into this space that was supposed to be a space where Gentiles, non-Jewish people could come and commune with the living God. And when he sees his people that have made this place and this space so marked by thievery, by extortion, by corruption pushing people away. They've made it an obstacle to God's presence, not an invitation to God's presence. Jesus is angry. He's angry. And doesn't like lightly, you know, I'm not going to tip over the, the piano here. He doesn't like lightly. He's not like, hey, I'm not, I'm not really angry. 
Um, but I'm just going to tip this table over real quick just as a demonstration, you know. And he's like, set it down real soft. You know, like, I'm not mad, everybody. I'm calm, gentle, and lowly. Remember I said that before? Gentle and lowly. He is flipping tables over, tossing stuff, driving people out with a whip. He is angry, angry. You're like, but I thought he was loving. Do you know that anger and love are not opposites at all? At all. Anger is a natural human emotion when something you love is being lost or threatened or hurt. Anger, a lot of people talk about anger as an indicator emotion, like a secondary emotion. When something you love has been lost or threatened or hurt, anger is the emotion that moves you. Sadness is an emotion where you you come to terms with that reality. You kind of have to feel the loss of something and you can't do anything about it. You have to welcome and kind of befriend the reality of the sadness, befriend the grief, befriend the loss, and accept it into your life and integrate it into who you are. That's sadness. Anger is... I can do something about this. Anger gives energy to move to address a problem, to address a wrong that can be and needs to be righted. Anger is not evil, it's not wrong, it's a movement. I'm gonna read this quote from Chip Dodd from this book called Voice of the Heart that I think is helpful. I was working with a counselor. I have, in my own journey, in my own time, really struggled. I don't feel angry often. I'm like, I never feel angry. He's like, never? I'm like, not really. It's like, man, anger is not inherently bad. I had to start working through that. I read this book, and I thought it was a stunning and really helpful description. Listen to this from his book, uh, The Voice of the Heart. Anger is the energy of desire, the energy of desire, and the willingness to reach for the desire to be satisfied. It shows us, even comforts us with what we care about. Authentic anger is a caring feeling, telling us that something matters, In fact, the energy of compassion is rooted in anger and the desire to make the pain we feel and see come to an end. When Jesus comes into this temple and he sees what's happened and he thinks about the intention of this space, what God's design for this space would be, his heart that his his temple would be a place where people were able to come and commune with him and as he sees people have so distorted and polluted that have now made an obstacle to his presence, Jesus gets angry, he's driven, he's moving to address this wrong and to make it right. Which is why it's not surprising that immediately after he drives out all of these tables and says these verses, look at what it says in the passage. It's like a, it's like a throw, you know it's a big day when a bunch of people getting healed is like a throwaway sentence. Like look, look, look at verse, chapter 21. Chapter 21, uh, verse 14, right? He's like, my. 13, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, you know, like, but imagine that, right? He's driving out some people, why? To welcome in others, to welcome in the hurting, to welcome in the wounded, to welcome in the weak, to welcome in the vulnerable, to welcome in the the marginalized and the ostracized. He's welcoming them into his presence. He's saying, we had so corrupted this place that it was keeping people out that I want in. And his anger moves him to make that right, to rectify the situation, to restore this place as a place of healing. And it's the first thing I want us to see in this passage that Jesus is a loving king who is passionate, passionate about restoring the broken. 
He's committed to it. He's driven. He's driven towards restoring the broken. There's two uh, scripture references or Old Testament citations that are being referenced in this phrase, the house of prayer and the den of robbers. The house of prayer phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 56 where Israel is called to be, when this Messiah finally comes, Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. Israel was supposed to be a place where non-Jewish people would see them and their holiness and their love, their love for God and their love for one another and the community they had built, that the nations would come to them, flock to them, and that this court of Gentiles is supposed to be a place where the nations could come and experience the, 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 the righteousness and the holiness and the glory of God. And then in Jeremiah 7, talks about how the temple and the people of God had made this place into a, a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Everywhere that shows up, which is a couple times in the Old Testament, it's always right before judgment comes. When the people of Israel so corrupt God's wisdom, so, so turn towards hypocritical worship, so turn towards uh, oppression and injustice, so tolerate the kind of, the, the kind of inattentiveness to the poor, that they, they don't show God a, a kind of love and a purity of worship, they start compromising and worshiping other idols and, and other countries' gods and other nations' gods. Every time that happens and the kind of temple worship gets so polluted, in times God will call that through the prophets that you've made my home into a den of robbers and it's always right before judgment, right before judgment where God is coming to actually bring judgment on his people for their ongoing rebellion. And these are hard things for us to think about. With our modern sensibilities, the idea of God having anger, legitimate anger, right? Not human irritability, not human annoyance or frustration, not resentment, but an anger that moves him to make wrongs right, to rectify broken situations. When we have a hard time understanding the anger of God, we have a hard time understanding the judgment of God. We're missing something about who God is. We're missing something really significant about who God is, and it's hard. It's hard for us. When I talk about the love of God or the gentle and lowly Jesus, man, it feels like a cold glass of water to me. I'm just like, oh man, his love, his faithfulness, his kindness, his mercy, his patience. When I preach about the love of God in a place like this, I feel the power of it. And some people have come from places where you really need to hear more and learn more about how deep God's love is for you. But there's a cultural movement to go so much into this understanding of God's love that God's love somehow precludes his ability to have anger or to bring legitimate judgment. And when we leave aside the judgment of God, we are missing a huge piece of his holiness and his character. When you minimize or leave aside the, the gravity of our sin and the judgment that it deserves, we are minimizing the hurt that's in the world. You minimize the pain that's in the world. You minimize the injustice that's in the world. But most significantly, you minimize the depth of the love that God has for us. Because when you embrace the magnitude of our sin, the, the, the significance of our rebellion, of taking this world, like those Pharisees had taken the temple and they had rearranged it to establish themselves and to make money and to extort others. We do the same thing with the world. We take this world, which is the Lord's. It's his dwelling place. It's like this cosmic 
temple and we take the world and we come into this space and we suck everything out of the world to make our life as good as it can be and we pollute our relationships and we use our bodies and our money and our recreation and our time and our jobs and our hobbies and we use them for us to lift ourselves up over other people and we we use our relationships to kind of bring identity and status to ourselves at the expense of others. We ignore the poor. We ignore the hurting. We ignore injustice all around the world. We've polluted this place. We've done the same thing. A guy named Cornelius Plantinga talks about sin as the vandalization of shalom, that we've vandalized the wholeness and the beauty of what God had designed the world to be. We did that. And when we minimize that and say, it's no big deal, God loves us. It's no big deal, God's patient. It's no big deal, God's gracious. He does love us. He is patient. He is gracious. And it's a big deal to him. It's a big deal to him, and it's a big deal the pain we bring into the world. You maybe have experienced the pain in the world, or you see people that have. It's a big deal. It's not inconsequential to God. And so God, in his love for the world, his desire for the world, and his anger about the sin that has broken the world, he moved into the world in the person of Jesus to rectify it, to make it right but not by sweeping aside his justice. It's the second thing I want us to see in this passage. The second thing I want us to see is that he is a just king who judges sin and corruption. In this passage, the the, the Jewish religious leaders that have established a system of injustice and oppression even inside the temple precincts, it's not like this one time, whoops, I messed up today, now God's really mad at me. This is an ongoing, sin of corruption and injustice in the face of long-standing, including John the Baptist, who had come as a prophet, calling people to return to the Lord, calling people to make straight the paths of the Lord, then through Jesus, preaching and teaching again and again, and these religious leaders stood obstinately, rejecting John the Baptist and rejecting Jesus. This is not a one-time thing. This is a group of people that are standing in hard-hearted rebellion against God, and Jesus comes to bring judgment. He comes to bring judgment. So when he says that you've made my house into a den of robbers, he's in a sense foreshadowing a future judgment that will come. And then he makes that plain through this weird, random cursing of a fig tree. Look at what happens in the passage. In the morning, as he's returning to the city, so this would be Tuesday, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, and he found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. It's like, I don't know if this is hangry Jesus, you know, like uh, he's a little bit hungry. It's the morning. He's like, man, I, could, I didn't have any breakfast, nothing. Ah, a fig tree, you know. And he sees the fig tree, leaves on it, looks good, promising, kind of goes up underneath it, nothing. Nothing. And he's like, Jesus zaps the tree, like cursed. You know, just zaps the tree, done, angry, this kind of like this reactive, like outburst against a tree, feels random. But nothing Jesus does and nothing the Bible writers record is ever random, ever. Uh, Jesus is in this long line of prophets who do all these like visible, public, symbolic demonstrations, and this is one of those. Uh, The figs throughout the Old Testament, fruitful trees have been a way to kind of be a metaphor of the the fruitfulness of the people of God. The people of God, when they're abiding in him and walking in his ways, they're supposed to be fruitful, bearing fruit that could actually be a blessing to others. But there are many times where the people of God are compared to a fruitless tree. And so here's what 
says, this is Micah chapter seven, and it's just a powerful, and it's a powerful passage. Micah seven says this, woe is me for I have become as when summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no ripe fig that my soul desires. And that passage is gonna talk about the people of Israel being like a fig tree with no ripe figs. There's no ripe figs. And that passage leads on to the reality of judgment that's coming. And Jesus is a king who has come to judge. He's a king who's come to bring salvation and judgment. It's who he is. He actually brings salvation through judgment. By judging the things that keep us away from who he's designed us to be, the sin that's in our life that has led us to turn away from his reign, to run away from him, those who continue in perpetual, unrepentant sin running away from him, his judgment is righteous, it is just, it is good. It's not because he's angry at like, kind of like arbitrarily, I just don't like humanity. He loves humanity. He desires humanity. He desires people to be reconciled, to know his love and his healing and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. He desires to transform us. He is desiring of us and he's desiring of us so much and he loves us so much and he's so just that these realities of his love and justice come together so beautifully in the person of Jesus. It's what he's doing in this week. He's bringing the reality of his judgment and the reality of his love to the center stage. And he will carry that tension all the way through this week where he'll finally be betrayed by a good friend. He'll be abandoned by all of the 12. He'll be wrongfully accused, falsely condemned. He'll be whipped, beaten, mocked, scourged, flogged. He'll be stripped. He'll be hung on a cross with a crown of thorns and elevated and and say, this is your king, Israel, and it is indeed their king. A king who's laying down his life to show the love and the justice of God. To show how much he loves us, but also how big of a deal our sin is. How big of a deal it is that he is laying down his life, not as an arbitrary expression of love, but as a payment for our sin to bear the wrath of God on our behalf so that people like you and me that participate in the pollution of the world could be welcomed to God's presence, forgiven, cleansed, atoned for, adopted, accepted, declared not guilty, declared righteous, loved, brought into a family where we are here like as people that are just dumbfounded. I had run away from you, I had polluted the world, and you still love me? I still love you. Even while you are still a sinner, I loved you and sent Christ to die for you. That's his love for us. And when we can understand the depth of his love for us, we become able to start admitting all the ways we've run from him, all the ways we've messed up. We can embrace the magnitude of our sin because it just helps us see the magnitude of his love, the way the Apostle Paul said it. When sin increases, grace increases all the more. When you understand the rabbit hole of your darkness and the darkness of your heart is deeper than you ever thought possible, you also understand the depth of his love is deeper, richer, wider, fuller. He does love you, he loves you deeply, and that love is displayed most beautifully, most fully in the work of Christ, crucified and risen. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us now to come to you as a people
in awe of who you are, both a king of love and a king of justice, a savior king who came to save us, to redeem us, to wash us, and I pray that your desire for us will cultivate in us a desire for you, that we would lay aside every sin and every weight that clings so closely and that we would run with endurance the race that's set before us. And so help us to be a people that take our own brokenness seriously, that look at it, turn from it, not in condemnation or shame, but because of your love, because of your work on our behalf. And would you bring deeper, richer transformation into our life by your grace, by your power, through your love, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.